Before we uh, go a little bit further, I would like to invite you to pull out a connection card. You should find one in front of you somewhere. Uh, and if you would just take a moment to fill that out. Uh, first of all, name, email address, those are probably the two most important. Any other information you'd like to share with us would be, uh, would be great. Um, how you found out about us is uh, al always good to know. Then on the other side, on uh, the left-hand side, there is a list of, um, list of things that if you would want more information about, you can request it there. And then finally, on the right-hand side, there's a place for prayer requests. And uh, if you would prefer, we, we send those out to the church, and uh, the church prays for them. If you would prefer that the uh, prayer requests remain private, you can just check that, and only the pastors will get it. So uh, just go ahead and take a moment to fill that out, and um, we'll get on here with our service. While you're doing that, I'll, let me just... Talk a little bit about the timing of this service, which is kind of interesting. Um, you would probably take a look at what's up on the screen and just assume that as soon as all of this mess started uh, in the world, that I ran out and found a, or created a series on justice. That's not what happened. I put together a sermon calendar at the beginning of each year. And I sit down and I kind of think about, okay, here's what, you know, here's what we, we're going to be preaching on for the entire year, all right? And I, there may be a few gaps here and there for some, you know, single sermons that um, we don't plan that far ahead. But most of our series are planned out fully at least a year in advance. So when I was doing that this past year, I came across, you know, this idea of, doing a series on justice. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. We don't do a lot of that. You know, we don't talk about God's justice all that much. And so that would probably be a good series to put in there somewhere. So I just, you know, kind of slotted it in. Well, then lo and behold, the whole world sort of blows up, or at least the U.S. And uh, in terms of justice. And it just happened to fall right here. So... Uh, I feel like God's anointing is, is kind of on this series as we, as we move into it. So hopefully you will think so too. Um, let's pray and we'll, then we'll get into it. So Father, I just I thank you for the timing of this series, for how you just put it right where it needed to be, knowing uh, in advance of what was going to happen and, and that we might need to hear something like this. So we just thank you and give you praise for that. I just ask you to be with uh, the words that I will speak, that they would represent and, uh, your truth and, and only your truth, and that any mistakes uh, are, are solely mine. So bless it now, Lord. Let those here and uh, watching online have ears to hear and uh, open hearts to absorb. So I give you thanks, and I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many people here are familiar with N.T. Wright? Okay, not many, few. Uh, well, N.T. Wright is a wonderful theologian, um, and he wrote a book called Simply Christian. And in that book, there's a title, there's a chapter that's titled Putting the World to Rights. 
And in that particular chapter, he begins with this story. He said, I had a dream the other night, a powerful and interesting dream. And the really frustrating thing is that I can't remember what it was about. I had a flash of it as I woke up, enough to make me think how extraordinary and meaningful it was, and then it was gone. And he goes on to say that our passion for justice often seems like that. We dream the dream of justice. We glimpse, for a moment, a world at one, a world put to rights. A world where things work out, where societies function fairly and efficiently. And then we wake up and we come back to reality. You see, according to Wright, our longing for justice comes with the kit of being a human being. Unfortunately, though we all strive for justice, we often fail to uh, achieve it. And as Wright says, you fall off your bicycle, you break your leg, you go to the hospital and they fix it. You stagger around on crutches for a while, then rather gingerly you start to walk again. There is such a thing as putting something to rights, as in fixing it, as in getting it back or on track. You can fix a broken leg. You can fix a broken toy. You can fix a broken television. So why can't we fix injustice? It isn't for lack of trying. And I think in spite of our failures to fix injustice, we keep dreaming that one day all the broken things will be set right. Wright contends Christians believe this so because all humans have heard deep within themselves the echo of a voice which calls us to live with a dream of justice. And followers of Christ believe that in Jesus, that voice became human and did what had to be done to bring it about. And as I was thinking about this quote, I thought that perhaps one of the reasons that we struggle so much with achieving this dream of justice is that too many of us don't understand where that dream originates. Maybe we think that because injustice exists, that God must be okay with that. And so we pursue justice in our own strength and in our own way without involving God in the pursuit. And so today we're going to start this series titled God and Justice. And my hope is that through it, we will all come to better understand that God is not the problem of injustice, but the solution to justice. And so to the, the place, I think, to begin that journey or that exploration is by examining the character of God. So if you want to follow along in uh, a Bible, you can turn it to the Psalms. We'll be in uh, Psalm 89. If not, we'll have it up on the screen for you. So Psalm 89, verses 5 through 18. Psalm 89, verses 5 through 18. And it goes as this. All heaven will praise your great wonders, Lord. Myriads of angels will praise you for your faithfulness. For who in all of heaven can compare with the Lord? What mightiest angel is anything like the Lord? 
The highest angelic powers stand in awe of God. He is far more awesome than all who surround his throne. O Lord God of heaven's armies, where is there anyone as mighty as you? You rule the oceans. You subdue their storm-tossed waves. You crushed the great sea monster. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, and the earth is yours. Everything in the world is yours. You created it all. You created north and south. Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon, praise your name. Powerful is your arm, strong is your hand. Your right hand is lifted high in glorious strength. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Unfailing love and truth walk before you as attendants. Happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, for they will walk in the light of your presence. They rejoice all day long in your wonderful reputation. They exult in your righteousness. You are their glorious strength. It pleases you to make us strong. Yes, our protection comes from the Lord, and he, the Holy One of Israel, has given us our King. So if we were to look at that and try to come to boil that down to a particular thought, I think it would be this. And that is that God alone is uniquely qualified to bring justice to humanity. And that's what we're going to explore today is why is that? Why is God alone uniquely qualified? And it really just came up with two reasons. I know if you're used to a three-point sermon, you'll be disappointed, but there's just two today, so deal with it. Uh, <laughs> The first is that because of God's character, his justice is restorative, not retributive. Okay, Because of God's character, his justice is restorative, not retributive. All right, let's dig into that a little bit. So what we have here is the psalmist is reminding the readers of several aspects of God's character in this psalm. Okay, He talks about his faithfulness, talks about his steadfastness, he talks about his covenant relationship with his people. He also recounts about God's power and God's strength. So the bottom line in all this is that the psalmist tells us that God's character is not to be doubted. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, wrote, He is too holy to be unrighteous, too wise to be mistaken. Did you love that? He's too holy to be unrighteous and too wise to be mistaken. And it's because of that character, which is so different from that of all of us as humans, that his justice has a different look and feel from the justice that we typically seek or even think about. Now I want to show you a clip, and it's, a, it's about six minutes I think, but it's a clip from the Bible Project. And I have really found these videos to be really, really wonderful. And so hopefully you will find this one too. And this is a clip that kind of explains the idea of biblical justice. Your mates. And if you're a honey bat. All right, can we start over again, I hope? All right, let's try that again. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. 
But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. like. Here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. 
And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, God's justice is restorative, not retributive. And that right there, I think, is a, is a huge difference in the way that we humans tend to see justice versus the way God tends to see it, right? See, my version of justice, if it was just left to me, um, and possibly you, is based on getting even, right? See, you know, somebody wrongs me, I want to make it right by getting even with them. See, that's exactly, the, it's the eye for an eye sort of mentality that we, uh, we go. It's all about retribution, about just getting, you know, making them as miserable as they've made you, I guess. But see, that's not at all the way God sees it. God's in the restoration business, and his justice is a cornerstone of that restoration business. And so that's why it's so important to have God's heart first for justice when we then go out and seek it, because otherwise we can lose that important quality of justice and possibly end up doing more harm than good if we're just going to seek it our way, right? If we're just going to find a way to punish the oppressors rather than restore them in some fashion. So God's justice, first and foremost, is restorative, not retributive. All right, and then second, the foundation of God's kingdom is his strength, his righteousness, and his love. Now this means that God can only do that which is right, just, equitable, and fair. Matthew Henry was a commentator from a century or so ago, and he wrote this. He said, never, excuse me, he never did nor ever will do anything that is either unjust or unwise. 
None of his dictates or decrees ever varied from the rules of equity and wisdom, nor could ever any change God with unrighteousness or folly. He always does that which is kind to his people. All right? So we've got strength, we have righteousness, and we have love. Now, if you could deny any one of these three, then every problem of suffering would be somehow logically explained. So we could say, well, God is strong and righteous in all he does, but he's not always loving. Or you could say, well, he's, he's righteous and loving, but he's not always strong enough to do what he wants. Or you could say that he's loving and strong, but not always righteous. See, but since he's all three, and he's always all three, then every act of God is full of his almighty strength, his holy uh, righteousness, and his changeless love. And because of that, then we can face life with faith rather than trying to explain things and with trust in him rather than trying to rely on our own logic to figure things out. See, the truth that God is just and loving can really empower us as believers to face the reality of one's own corruption and to then to find hope through Jesus. And I think knowing that God takes evil seriously gives the victim of injustice comfort and validation that wrongdoings will be dealt with fairly by a Father God who does not look the other way. And understanding that justice is important to God can embolden the believer to stand up for the vulnerable and for those that have suffered injustice through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so justice is not just a new movement or a trendy cause that's here today and then gone tomorrow when the news cycle changes. It's the foundation of God's righteous kingdom and all of us as believers need to pursue it with a lot of zeal. So, now knowing that God's justice is foundational to who he is, and also knowing that his justice and his view of justice differs greatly from what ours typically can be, kind of raises the question, so what do we do? What should we do? What can we do? And I think that because of this knowledge that God is just, then the believer should be motivated to reflect God's character in his life or her life. Now that can be challenging, because as you saw right at the end of that video, pursuing justice sometimes requires maybe not even sometimes, often requires confrontation. We don't typically like confrontation a whole bunch. See, it's, it's very minimal risk to be a keyboard activist. It's minimal risk to kneel somewhere for eight and a half minutes. But engaging in our actual communities is a lot harder. It's a lot more difficult. 
It's because it's not just symbolic. It's because you have to go and get your hands dirty. In the church, which you know, admittedly has been marred over the centuries with abuse and greed and pride. And I get that. It's, it's been the source of destroying a lot of people's faith. And that's terribly sad. And so perhaps the time has come now for believers to speak up about this, to speak up about it inside the church, but don't stop there. To speak up about it in city hall meetings and in schools and anywhere that you see it to ensure that all people are valued and honored and protected. Perhaps this means creating a ministry that pursues justice in some way. Perhaps it means running for the school board. Perhaps it means looking into becoming a city council member. See, to, to pursue justice and to do so in a way that offers the world more than just a glimpse of it, as N.T. Wright said when we began, means being active in your corner of the world. Let's pray. Father, we see in these words of yours from the Psalms that justice is part of your character. It's, it's part of who you are. It's not something that you kind of come and go with. And so, Father, I just ask that you would embolden all of us to seek out ways to be justice to this world, whether it's raising an issue, um, whether it's entering into the communities where there are, uh, where there is injustice, and where there are people who suffer from it, whether it's in working to turn the tides of those social structures that perpetuate injustice. Lord, you have a calling on each of our lives, and there is something that each of us can do in this area. So, Lord, I pray that you would begin to reveal that to these, your people, that they would begin to understand how it is that they can help, that they can be a part of this, and not, and not just stand on the outside and, and look at it as a casual observer, but to truly dig in and be the change that this world so desperately needs. We just give you thanks, Lord. And we lift this prayer to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will look in the... Um, little holders of the chairs that are in front of you, you should be able to find a, a small communion cup. And uh, there's a little piece of bread in there as well, or a wafer. And so just invite you to join with us in, uh, in receiving the Lord's Supper at this time. And so we recall now that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And he asked his Father in heaven to bless it. 
And then he broke it and he gave it to each one of his disciples and he said, take this, all of you, and eat, for this is my body given for you. And when the supper was ended, he took the cup and again he gave you thanks and praise. And he in turn gave this cup to all of his disciples and he said, take this, all of you, and drink, for this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, blood that was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. So whenever you eat of this bread or drink of this cup, do so in, remember, in remembrance of me. Lord God, we thank you for this sacrament. Pray that you would now bless these simple elements in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that they would be consecrated and made holy. That this meal would be that which sustains us spiritually. The body of Jesus given for you. The blood of Jesus shed for you. Lord, I give you thanks and praise for who you are and all that you do. We love you and we relish the opportunity to draw closer to you as you draw closer to us. Please bless all of these, your people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now I ask Pastor Chip to come and close our service. Let's bring the lights down a little bit. Thank you. Well, that was quick. At this point in our service, what we typically do is we have a ministry time. So if you have any spiritual needs or physical needs, we have people that can pray for you. John, you're back there. And if you want him to wear a mask, he will wear a mask. If you want him to stay six feet away, he will. It's completely up to you. But um, you can come find me, Jeff, John, or you can just, you know, do whatever. But we want to just invite the Holy Spirit and enter into our ministry time. If you don't need anything and you're ready to just bounce, you can do that too. That's perfectly fine. But Father, we ask that your Spirit would come. Father, we ask that you would move during this ministry time. Father, we love you. We love you. you've never given your life to Jesus today and you would like to do that, then it's really simple. You don't even have to necessarily do this out loud in front of everybody, but just ask him. Just ask him to be your savior. Just ask him to come into your life. And he will. Maybe you need to be filled with the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We'd love to pray with you for that as well. 
But again, John, if you could wave in case people don't know you. In the back, there's John. There's Andre. He can pray with you as well. And Pastor Jeff. Father, thank you for our service, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing in, in this church. Thank you for justice. Father, help us to stand for the oppressed. Help us to lift those who have been systematically beaten down, Lord. And help us to be who you've called us to be as a church. We love you, Lord, and we ask it all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Again, if you need prayer, just find one of them, and we'll be more than glad to pray for you.